0: Jesus is the high priest you need. Uh, if you are in a difficult situation with the authorities, some kind of the authorities, then you may need someone to intercede on your behalf, a go between. And the more uh, clout that person has, the more influential they are, then the greater chance of success. Uh, It's a bizarre fact, but in the 1980s, uh, when the Karen people in Burma were being heavily persecuted by the Burmese government uh, through their military machine, the leader of the Karen National Union got in touch with Mrs Thatcher and asked if Mrs Thatcher could intervene on behalf of the Karen. The leader was a great admirer of Thatcher, considered that she had a standing on the world stage that might persuade the Burmese government to listen. And in many walks of life, uh, you reach out to someone who will intercede for you. When you choose your referees, when you're applying for a job. Uh, you make sure that they are of good character, are respected in their field, and also that they're going to be on your side. Uh, There's no point in appealing to a referee who's going to shoot you down uh, in their response. And by far the most important realm in which we need an intercessor, a mediator, is the spiritual realm. And the whole concept of priesthood uh, the reason why the idea of a priest uh, was worked its way into the very uh, fabric of Jewish society was to underline uh, the fact that though we have turned ourselves uh, into people unacceptable to God, we have turned in on ourselves, we have rebelled against God and broken his commandments, and therefore we need someone to plead our case. We are guilty, we cannot stand ourselves and demand justice. We need an intercessor or a priest. A priest acts as a go-between between sinful men and women and a holy God by offering up appropriate sacrifice and making intercession. But the question, and this is the, 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 the root question to the, the chapter is, who can fulfil this huge task of making us right with God? What kind of priest is up to this task? And Jesus has been revealed to us in these last days as the high priest to whom all the scriptures point and who alone can make us right with God. But pastorally, the question that the the first readers of the letter are wrestling with is this. Is Jesus enough? Uh, is trust in a priest in heaven whom I have never seen. Enough. Would I not be better uh, going back to the traditional and the visible and the respected order of Levitical priests, priests that the the Jewish people uh, respected and admired, who could trace their genealogy to Aaron, who were of the tribe of Levi. Maybe I need something that's more tangible, uh, that seems more real, people I can see. Now, Roman Catholicism holds out the same kind of attraction to many. In fact, there have been uh, some quite prominent uh, figures in the Reformed faith who have lapsed back into Catholicism because of the attraction of a, a visible priesthood. One of the, on the kind of other end of the spectrum, one of the attractions of the emerging church movement, uh, which downplays doctrine and plays up emotional experience, is the aspect of mystic ritual, uh, which is often part of emerging church services. And the response to all of that is this wonderful chapter, which at first reading sounds quite alien. But as we dig into it, it, shows up the supremacy of Jesus in stark contrast to the Aaronic priesthood and then by extension to all other rivals to his office of mediator. Jesus, supremely and uniquely, is the one who can bring us back to God and whose intercessions are effective for helpless sinners like you and me. Now I want to keep our sermon as simple as possible tonight. It's a difficult chapter in some ways, but in one sense it's it's actually quite straightforward. And the argument is this that the writer establishes first of all that Melchizedek in many ways is a type of Christ. A type is a shadow A type points towards the real thing, and Melchizedek points us towards Jesus. He makes us think of some of the unique things in regard to Melchizedek that were true of Jesus. So we're going to call the first part of the sermon Jesus and Melchizedek and see how he draws out these similarities. And then the writer goes on to show how this correspondence between Jesus and Melchizedek shows that the old priesthood and the law that went with it was only provisional. That it was temporary. It was pointed to something fuller. Jesus is the one to whom it was pointing. Jesus is the priest they need. So let's look first then at Jesus and Melchizedek. The argument in this chapter is based on uh, the two chapters we read. I'm very grateful to Cameron for reading Genesis 14 with all these uh, long names. Uh, Based on that and Psalm 110, where quite clearly uh, the connection is made between Jesus and Melchizedek. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He's a strange guy. Uh, he bursts on the the, the scene uh, like a meteor. You know, suddenly, he's there. And then just as suddenly, he disappears without trace. When Abram's nephew Lot was living in Sodom, he was caught up in a kind of Middle Eastern uh, insurrection. King of Sodom and his allies, uh, four kings... Uh, rebelled against five kings from the east who were seeking to subjugate the area. Lot and his family were taken captive. Abram raised up a fam- uh, 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 an army for his followers and set out and defeated uh, Lot's captors and brought him and his people back. And on his return, Abram is met first of all by the king of Sodom and then by Melchizedek, um, Melchizedek is said to have been a priest of God Most High uh, in Hebrew, Elion. Uh, it's a title that's used of God uh, in a number of 33 different places in the Old Testament where Elyon is used uh, used in the Psalms, he's a priest of the true God and he's a human character, some commentators have wanted to argue that he was a, a, an incarnation of the second person of the Trinity before uh, Jesus came but that destroys the whole idea of type. He was a human who pointed towards the spiritual, the, the coming of Christ. He sets bread and wine out to fortify Abram and blesses him. And Melchizedek gives, uh, no, Abram gives Melchizedek a tithe or one tenth of all of the plunder that he had obtained in the battle. Now, all of these details are of huge interest to the writer to the Hebrews, and he spells them out. He's going to show that Melchizedek is a type or a shadow or a pointer towards Christ. Now, this is the idea of having a a type, and we call the fulfilment of that type, the anti-type, is very important in the Bible. There's lots of places, and we've seen them already in in our Genesis studies, for example, uh, the rock that was smitten. Type of Christ. Uh, the manna. Uh, and, and many of the articles of the tabernacle uh, pointing towards Jesus. But in the history of the church, uh, sometimes people have got carried away with themselves and they've read into almost every little detail of a story something of greater significance. Uh, for example, in the Middle Ages there was an abuse of the, the parable of the, the Good Samaritan where Every detail of the parable was made to walk on all fours. So the two coins that were given by the Samaritan to the innkeeper were interpreted as being types of the sacraments, you know, the communion and baptism. That's obvious that that was uh, reading far too much into it, but it was very much in vogue. And when we think about things as being shadows of Jesus, of being symbolic, in other words, our sure guide is when the Bible itself treats them as being symbolic. When the Bible regards something as symbolic, then we're entitled to see a connection with with Jesus and his work. And we're on very safe ground here because that's exactly what the Bible does. Uh, There is, first of all, this solid connection in Psalm 110. Uh, Jesus himself, quotes Psalm 110 is pointing towards him. And he is said to be a priest like Melchizedek. And of course, we're reading Holy Scripture now, which is making that, that very case that Melchizedek is a type or a shadow of Jesus. How is he a type of Christ? Well, uh, first of all, there's the name itself. The writer says it means king of righteous. Melchizedek means king of righteousness in Hebrew. And he's king of Salem which you know, the very uh, name sounds like Shalom, peace he's the king of righteousness and he's the king of peace what could be more messianic than that Jesus is the king of righteousness he has come to give us righteousness from God he is the prince of peace coming to establish peace between sinners and a holy God that's the first connection Second, there's an argument from silence. Now, usually, when uh, you make an argument from silence, uh, it's a rather shaky ground, but not in this case. Uh, the, the silence is reference to Melchizedek's uh, ancestors uh, and his descendants. He is a man without any genealogy. Now, that's significant because uh, he is referred to in Genesis, uh, which is the book of beginnings. And what is significant about everybody that's mentioned in Genesis? You learn about uh, their dad. You learn about their sons. Uh, There's a great deal of space uh, given to genealogy in the book of Genesis. But not so with Melchizedek. He comes without father, without descendants. And the point is that it gives to him the appearance of being an eternal being. Now, of course, he wasn't. He was a, a literal human being. But this artistic presentation of someone without uh, forebears or descendants points us towards the eternal son, son of God. What's also really significant is what this mysterious Melchizedek did. He received tithes of the plunder from Abram. In other words, Abram, who is this great hero of uh, The Jews, the father of the Israelite nation, honoured him as a superior. And Jewish readers would have had their amazement rekindled by uh, this fact being brought to to mind again. Uh, This man at the top of the Jewish roll of honour honours Melchizedek. Melchizedek then blesses Abram And the writer points out that it is the superior who blesses the inferior. So here is Abram, who is the the top dog in the Israel uh, role of honour, and Melchizedek is greater than Abram. But it's especially Jesus in his priestly role that the writer is interested. And so uh, he makes an unusual point at this stage. It's a point that maybe we uh, don't grasp as well as the original leaders, uh, readers, he says that one could even say that Levi presented the tithes to Abram, since Levi was present in Abram's body. Levi, one of the, the twelve sons of, of Jacob, uh, Levi's tribe, were the priestly tribe, and the idea of Levi the priest presenting the, the tithes is, if you think of uh, an acorn from a, an oak tree, having all of the gene- genetic material uh, that's in this mighty oak tree uh, in the acorn. Uh, in the same sense, he's saying uh, Levi was in a uh, prototype form in Abram, and Levi could be seen as presenting those tithes to Melchizedek. Argument may be a little uh, opaque, but the point is clear. Melchizedek represents not only one who was eternal who was a king of righteousness and peace who was one who was greater than Abraham but also one who was a greater priest than the priests who were all descended from Levi Melchizedek represents Jesus application if Abraham humbled himself before Melchizedek, then the Hebrew writers must humble themselves before the one to whom Melchizedek pointed, Jesus, the great priest. He is the one that they need. So, verses 1 uh, down to uh, 10, that is the, the course of the argument. And then from verse 11... To the end of the chapter, the writer uh, goes on to show that Jesus is superior uh, to the Aaronic priesthood and that his is the perfect order, whereas the priesthood of Aaron, those who followed in descent from Aaron of the tribe of Levi, uh, their priesthood was an imperfect one. The old order had come from the tribe of Levi. Jesus, he points out, is from the tribe of Judah. This new priestly order has been drawn from a different tribe, and that is signalling a change also in relation to the law. The tribe of Levi's priesthood came to dispense the old covenant law, a new order altogether is being brought in with Jesus of the tribe of Judah, the new priest. Think of a, a football club <coughs> that traditionally recruited from uh, its former players. You know They were all groomed in the, uh, the way of thinking of the club and the style of, of play. And then the, the management decided, well, all of these foreign coaches seem to be uh, the flavor of the day. Uh, we'll go for somebody from Portugal. Spain. And so the foreign coach comes in and has new and radically different ideas about how the team plays. Uh, There's a new order and it ushers in uh, new changes in the way things are done. And so verse 14 reminds us that where there is a change of the priesthood, there is also a change of the law. Now, This is one of the things where this chapter is important in the kind of thing that we were looking at a couple of Sundays ago in the morning. Jesus said that he had come uh, not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus is this priest that is spoken of in Hebrews 7. But Jesus has also come to introduce a radically different way of looking at the law. The ceremonial law, the law of unclean foods, the law of tabernacle and temple rituals, sacrifice, priesthood and everything. That has been fulfilled so as no longer to be necessary in the lives of Jesus' followers. And the, the Ten Commandments, the moral law, has been intensified and deepened, has been written on the heart. This new priest has brought in A new order of of relating to the law. Contrast is between the imperfect priestly order and the perfect priesthood of Jesus. And the writer points to five imperfections in the old order and then contrasts them with the five perfections that are to be found in Christ. First of all, the old line was imperfect because it depended upon a physical connection to Aaron rather than the personal quality of the (coughs) priest himself. We're in deep trouble when we are, uh, uh, especially in relation to our sin, when we uh, are looking to someone who uh, is... Related uh, to somebody else and is, is an intercessor by virtue of their family tree rather than any personal qualities. secondly, the old priesthood was imperfect because it was there to administer the old covenant law. And the imperfections were there, uh, and we should have been obvious because. The sacrifices of animals in themselves cannot cleanse from sin. It's what the animal sacrifices pointed to, the work of Jesus, the Lamb of God, that gave them any kind of efficacy. This imperfect law, verse 19, made nothing perfect. Thirdly, the old priesthood lacked the oath, the decisive oath that came with God's introduction of the new order, Fourth, the old order was impermanent. Priests were continually being changed because priests died. One priest succeeded another. Uh, in fact, at Jesus, uh, in Jesus' day, there was something of a confusion because uh, Annas, the high priest, had been deposed by the Romans and his son-in-law, Caiaphas, uh, was made the high priest in his stead. But some of the Jews still uh, deferred to Annas. They were used to to revering him as as their priest. And so we see Jesus brought before both Annas and Caiaphas at his trial. Fifthly, and decisively, the old line of priests were weakened because they were sinners. That was the, the huge symbolism. Uh, for example, on the day of atonement, the, the priest, the high priest, sacrificed uh, a bull for himself before he went to sacrifice on behalf of the people. He was as guilt, guilty as the people for whom he had to make intercession. In each of these five counts, Jesus has swept away imperfection and has brought in perfection. One. His priesthood does not depend on his earthly ancestry, but in the wonderful words of verse 17, is on the basis of an indestructible life. Didn't depend on a regulation that was able to approve ancestry from Aaron. It came on his own uh, divine being as the son of God, the eternal son of God, an indestructible life. Second, Jesus brought in perfection, Uh, that the law lacked because he came in to point to a better hope. A better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. His work is effective. Killing lambs, goats and and bulls uh, could only point to something else. He comes as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Calvary alters altogether our relationship with God. In the Old Covenant, people went again and again and again with their sacrificial animals to the tabernacle and the temple. And the one thing that this had to be indicating was that whatever these lambs and bulls and calves were doing this, they weren't taking away sin because it had to be done again and again and again. But in the New Covenant, we come to Calvary and we see the knife of the Father plunged into the Son who dies for us once for all, we don't see a sacrifice repeated every year. We see a sacrifice that was so effectual that it covered all of our sins for all time. And we realise that we have something which is a sure ground of a better hope. And the writer to the Hebrews is saying in effect, are you going to leave that? You must be kidding. You must be joking. Are you going to leave this once and for all perfect sacrifice and go back to all that uh, slaying of lambs and goats and bulls? Don't think that there's any surer ground of acceptance before God than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a better hope. Thirdly, uh, he has been appointed to office by divine oath. Uh, This is quoting from Psalm 110. The Lord has sworn by himself. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. We saw last time, uh, when uh, we were looking at God swearing by himself, the significance in Scripture there is when God takes upon himself voluntarily to make an oath. God, whose word is always trustworthy, in these two occasions, makes swears by himself. He's declaring something to be unchangeably and endlessly true. And that kind of oath could never be made, really, before Jesus came. Fourthly, the older priests were impermanent. One died, another succeeded, and so on. Jesus comes as our eternal advocate. He always lives, and he lives on our behalf he makes endless intercession. We're going to return to this briefly, but verse 25 is just such a beautiful verse. It's the the kind of climax of the chapter. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus' endless intercession for his people. Then fifthly, and all these are kind of corresponding to the imperfections of the old priesthood. Fifthly, Jesus is sinless. Unlike the old priests who had to sacrifice for their sins before they could make an offering, Jesus had no need to sacrifice for his sins. He is without blemish. He is the perfect priest and the perfect sacrifice. Uh, Again, the, the kind of the, the wording, that the piling up of perfections is beautiful, is, is touching. He is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted in the heavens. These are wonderful ascriptions of perfection to our Saviour. We, we need just to, to to soak them in, to meditate upon them. Jesus is holy, he is morally perfect, just and good, and faithful, righteous in all his ways and unchangeably so. Blameless. The, the uh, King James and their and catechisms uh, use the word uh, harmless. Uh, uh, the word blameless is saying that he has never done harm to anyone. Jesus will only do us good. Blameless, free from all blame. uh, Pure. He's undefiled. There is no sin that would defile him. He's perfect. Gloriously perfect. Pure and undefiled. He is set apart from sinners. He is in an altogether a different category from uh, the the sinfulness that attaches to us. Exalted in the heavens, he is majestically owned by the Father, seated at his right hand in the place of victory. Let's remind ourselves again of this implication that's spelt out in verse 25 uh, that Jesus is Eternally interceding for us. Jesus is our high priest and is making intercession for us. What's he praying for? He's praying for our salvation. Jesus is praying for us in order to secure our greatest need the thing that we need more than anything else in this whole world, and that is to be saved. Our greatest need uh, is to escape the wrath of God, which is due to us because of our sin. Sin makes us combustible in the presence of God's wrath. It's as though there's a great fire and uh, we've been doused with, with, uh, with petrol and we didn't come near to God because we would, just, we would catch fire and would be burned up. And yet we need to be in God's presence if we're to, to escape uh, his, his judgment. We need to be there. And we need a salvation that will wrap us around with, with righteousness, which will be, as it were, a, a moral asbestos to preserve us in the presence of God who is a consuming fire. And if that is to be the case, if we're to escape God's judgment, we need a better priest than the priests of Aaron's line. We need perfection. So that's the first implication of that verse, that Jesus is praying for our salvation. He's praying for our our greatest good, and that is that we might be saved from the wrath of God. And the second implication is that our future salvation depends on the active work of Christ forever and ever, not just on the past work of Christ or on our decisions in the past and the commitments that we made in the past. Verse 25 says that Christ can save forever since he always lives to make intercession for us. Now the implication is that he would not save us if he did not continually make intercession for us. His ongoing intercession is, is vital for us to be saved. Now we don't think about this a lot. We don't think speaking personally, we don't think as much as we ought to of the uh, the intercessory office of Jesus as our high priest. But something that we do um, acknowledge is that salvation has got three tenses. We, we, we know that uh, salvation means that I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. I have been saved from sin as I have trusted Jesus, put my faith in him, and his work on the cross has been uh, credited to me his righteousness has been credited to to me and I am being saved I am being saved uh, in the midst of this sinful world saved from the the temptation to apostatize to turn my back away from Christ, saved from the, the clutches of all of the forces that would pull me away from following Jesus I will be saved. Future, when Jesus comes to take me to be with him in a perfect environment where there will be no more sin. Past, present, future tenses of salvation. And this this is the point of this chapter. The only way that you and I will be saved now, present tense, is by the intercession of Jesus. The only way that we will not find in our lives that the dreadful reality of, of the warnings of Hebrews, warnings against uh, apostasizing, turning uh, resolutely away from Christ is by the intercessions of Jesus. Our salvation is only as indestructible as our priests' intercessions. That is why we need a priest like no other. That's why Aaron will not do That's why we need Jesus. Holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted in the heavens. He is the priest that we need. John Owen, in his commentary in this chapter, uh, says that Jesus' priestly work for us now involves three things. First, Means the very presence of his person before the throne of God on our behalf. Jesus is high priest because he is present before God. Second, it means the representation of his death and sacrifice for us, which he says gives power, life, and efficacy unto his intercession. So he is present the living Christ, he represents as a continual reminder his sacrifice in Calvary these things in themselves don't constitute prayer Jesus thirdly is praying for us and Owen says that this is a requesting and offering unto God of his desires and will for the church attended with care, love and compassion Jesus is praying for us Jesus is applying the benefits of the salvation he won for us on the cross to us continually. He provides his people with a life-giving spirit. He instructs, nourishes, protects, preserves us. He prays for us. He prays for us when we are not praying for him ourselves. And the, the great example of this in Scripture is Simon Peter Uh, Before Jesus' passion, Jesus uh, said to Simon that he was going to deny him, deny him three times. And Jesus assures him, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Jesus knew that Simon would slide it was a testing ordained of God Jesus knew that in his slide Simon Peter would not be lost, he would turn back, he would finally be saved and why? what was the the reason? the ultimate reason the ultimate reason is that Jesus would be praying for him friends that's our only hope that we have in heaven a high priest who is continually interceding for us. No other priest of any kind can do that. Jesus is the priest that we need. May God bless to us his word. Amen.